First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 begins with now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? We've been making our way steadily, continually, weekly, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Corinthians. We sort of turned a corner at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with the word, it's now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So the first six chapters, Paul was dealing with issues that the Corinthians had within their church, problems that they had. And the second section of the book from 7 on to 16 deals with questions the Corinthians had for the apostle Paul. And he begins to answer those questions. And you can always tell when he kind of switches subjects. He says, now concerning these things or now about these things. So this section has been on marriage. And last week, we really hammered out the issue of sexual intimacy and pleasurable sexual intimacy in a marriage and the place of that. We also talked about the value of being single. If that's what you're called to do, if you're called to be single, then be single. If you're called to be married, then be married. And we hammered those things out last week. Now we pick up in chapter 7, verse 10, and we switch directions once again. We switch directions, but not topics. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. As you read, as I read, as we read together, we're talking about the issues of marriage and divorce. So here's what I know, just by way of introduction, as we get into these topics, I know these can be very sensitive and very painful and difficult topics for many of us. I would dare say that there is not a single person in this room whose life has not been touched by divorce in some way or another. Let me ask this question. Maybe it's you, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your children, your grown children that have been divorced. Has your life, just raise your hand if your life has been in some way or another impacted by divorce. So the large majority, if not everybody, has been impacted by this. I know that as we go through this, I've met with so many couples. I do a lot of marriage counseling I've heard as many stories as I could hear. We've cried together. We've prayed together. We've sought the Lord together. We've problem solved together. Again, I know as we get into this, these verses find you all over the board potentially in terms of how you're going to hear what you'll hear. And here's my goal is that I give you an education and motivation without condemnation. I want to see you get educated about marriage, divorce, the impacts it has on people, the impact it has on the church, the impact it has on society and culture. I want you to be educated. I want us to know the truth about marriage and divorce because the TV glorifies, the movies glorify all of these things. So we want to have a real and an educated estimation and approach to these issues. So I want to give you motivation that wherever you are now, look down, if you would, as I say this, look down at verse 24 because this is really the point of a lot of what Paul is saying. 
Verse 24, Paul says, brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. That goes back to our sermon last week. If you were called when you were single and you can stay single, then great, stay single. You don't have to get married to be more spiritual. If you were called when you were married, this section is going to deal with, you don't have to be single to be more spiritual. You can stay married and serve the Lord. And that's what he's addressing here as he addresses divorce and marriage. He addresses it from the standpoint of what they were asking about. Evidently, there was a thought process, a teaching and understanding that once you became a believer, that now I have to be single. If I really want to serve the Lord, it's the monastic lifestyle, it's singleness, it's my whole life given over to the Lord. Therefore, now I'm saved. What do I do with my husband? What do I do with my wife? Well, we're going to have to divorce so I can devote all of myself to the Lord only. And interestingly, Paul says, no, that's not it at all. So he's encouraging them in this marriage bond that they've entered to stay in the marriage. If you were married when you got saved, he says, then stay in that married state. And that's the source why Paul is answering this question. For us, it has a little different application. Divorce in our day and age looks different. I don't say that I've met a couple who was struggling because they both wanted to be more spiritual and they thought they should get divorced because of that. Usually it's quite the other type of issue. So a little bit of background in terms of divorce in the Greek culture. If you lived back in ancient Corinth, their understanding of marriage and divorce would have been that if you were a girl, roughly between ages maybe 14 to 16, that's when you would get married. And you'd be given away in an arranged marriage situation, most likely. You'd be married to a man twice your age, probably 30, 35 years old. The attraction of a marriage, attraction was not really part of what they considered important when it came to being married. I mean, it was a secondary thing at best. The primary matters that were to be discussed when it came to a marriage relationship were the dowry, which is how much her father's going to pay you to marry her, and fertility, could you give kids, and skills, could you weave, could you take care of the home, because that's where Greek women spent most of their lives, in the home. They were not out present in much of the culture as the men were. So these were the things that were part of the marriage agreement, were part of the marriage thinking. Divorce was extremely common. Remember, this is also a culture that was extremely sexually perverse and lax with their sexuality. It was not sacred like it is for the Christian, but it was very promiscuous and very blatant and outward in their culture. So divorce was common and divorce in their day had no stigma attached to it. And it was easily arranged for a woman. All she had to do was leave the husband's home and go live somewhere else, and she was divorced. Now, the husband would have to pay her back whatever dowry he had received, but then she would go her way, he would go his. And the husband, if men wanted to divorce their wives, he could just throw his wife out of the house. He could return her to his father's home with the dowry, of course, or he could give her to another man to be his wife. So we see that in their culture, not too different from our culture of no-fault divorce, that divorce was very easy, very common, happening. So now this Corinthian church is in the midst of a culture of easy divorce, thinking that maybe the most spiritual thing to do after I get saved is to get divorced so I can devote my life to Christ. And Paul is addressing that issue that they had evidently written him about. Now, let's talk a few words before we get into the passage itself about divorce in our American culture. You know the statistics, one out of every two, 50% roughly. Now that's gone down marriages end in divorce, that's going down to the upper 40s. And you might say, hey, that's great. We're making progress in this area. Don't be too quick to assume that. That statistic has been changed by the fact that many people are just choosing not to get married at all. 
So people are just living together. And so that doesn't show up when they don't live together anymore. That doesn't show up as a divorce statistic. But when we're talking about things like marriage and divorce, what are we really talking about? We're talking about family, right? We're talking about issues of family. In the beginning, God said, man shall leave his father and mother, leave his birth family so he can start his own family. Man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They too shall become one flesh. And then he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. So even from the beginning, God's approval and God's creation, not just of husband and wife, but of family. And family to this day continues to be the most essential building block of culture that exists on the face of the earth. A healthy nation is built by healthy families. One side note, I'll give you one side note. Interestingly, in the Greek culture, male-to-male homosexuality was extremely common. Even Alexander the Great had a male sexual partner. It was very common for older men with younger boys. That was just their cultural thing. And yet, they would not have ever considered a same-sex marriage in their culture because to the Greek mind, the purpose of marriage was to produce children. Impossible in a same-sex marriage. And to create a family, impossible in a same-sex marriage, at least without science, it's impossible. And to perpetuate one's own name, lineage, and memory through heirs. So as we talk about these things, just recognize that same-sex marriage, same-sex unions, these things are not even on the radar for the Greeks, the Corinthians, even though it was a culture where homosexuality was very rampant and accepted. But for them, the marriage of these two would not have even been considered because of what they thought of families and the purpose of family. So back to our American culture, I went to Washington, D.C. had an opportunity through wall builders, David Barton, to go to Washington, D.C. and be part of hearing the heart of some of the senators, congressmen on Christ in our government. And it was a fascinating time to spend. And one senator really struck my attention more than the others. The interesting things he said, as he's speaking to a group of pastors, he said, Washington does not change the country. The country changes Washington. He said, government is getting bigger because the family is getting weaker. The key to health and welfare of our nation is the local church. Why the local church? Because the local church encourages, supports, and cares for the basic family unit of our nation. You know, we spend so much time watching TV and listening to the news and arguing about the government. We're emphasizing the wrong thing. We need to do what we can as a church, to support and encourage healthy, supportive family units. Are you with me in that, church? And I think we've been doing our best to do that. And that includes preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because I find it so interesting that we'll watch the news, and our news is full of fake news now, isn't it? So much fake news, hard to know what's right or what's wrong or who's accurate and who's inaccurate or who's twisting it and who's not twisting it. Everybody's twisting it. And we'll hear something about the president. We'll hear something about the Democrats. There's something about the Republicans. And we'll get all up in arms and all, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. But then people come to the Bible and, and we read about these things in the Bible and we go, I'm not sure I can trust the Bible. All day long, I'll trust the newsman. But I come to the Bible, I go, I'm not sure I can trust it. Let me tell you, the word of God has been faithful through generations and generations. We've never had to go, you know what? Wow, that's what it said there. We need to change that. That doesn't apply anymore. So the things we're reading today applied to the Corinthians in one way and apply to us in our culture as severely and as certainly as they did back in the Greek culture time. So are you with me in that? A couple other things as we talk about family, we're in the days of issues with gun control, 
and gun shooters, school violence, those kinds of things. The Washington Post, and I'm giving you these things from the world's perspective. I could quote Christian resources all day long, but you might say, well, of course that resource is going to say those things because it's biblical. I'm giving you the world's resources because what I want to show you is that the world is saying, hey, we see what's happening and what's happening really goes back to what the Bible says. So God's word always continually rings true. Washington Post making a comparison, a relationship between what we see in terms of violence and family. March 2018, gun control activists are quick to blame mass shootings on the proliferation of firearms, but are less likely to point to the proliferation of fatherless households. Yet research shows that school shooters tend to come from broken homes where one or more parent is absent, addicted, or abusive. Now, I read another article that I'm not going to quote to you, but uh, there's roughly 27 of the top school shootings, the shooters. The initial article said 26 of them were from fatherless homes, but then they redacted that. Turns out a couple of them had a little more interesting situations than that, but the redacted article said, in fact, it was the vast majority, not just some, but the majority of the school shooters have come from homes of fatherlessness or addiction or abuse. So we can keep trying to put band-aids on situations, but the real challenge is economic, cultural, social, gun control, all these things really ultimately all trace back to, for all the modern research shows, all trace back to family. In the United States, there is one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day, 16,800 per week, and 876,000 divorces per year. And, And all the children connected to that. The average length of a first marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. Speaking of American culture and divorce, I went to take my truck a number of years ago to Jiffy Lube. So I go in and of course my practice is to make conversation with the people that are helping me out there. So as he's punching my numbers into the computer, I'm saying, so, you know, you live in Charlottesville or where do you live? He goes, no, I live in Fluvanna. I said, oh, me too. How about that? You live alone. You have a family. No, no, I just got married. Recently, I said, oh, congratulations. He said, well, she's my practice wife. Yeah, that's what I said. And so as we began to talk, he just began to share that he figured he'd have one to work out the kinks on. They'd divorce, then he'd move on to his real wife. But you know, statistically, once you're divorced once, the odds of a second divorce are greater, and then third divorce is even greater after that. So these are the kind of things that are out in our world. Look, you do well to ask people questions, don't you? Find out what makes people tick. Find out where they are. It's very educational. Legal Zoom. Legal Zoom says divorce can save people from a bad marriage, but research has shown that it can also debilitate a society. Divorced adults are more likely to become impoverished while their children experience psychological and economic stress, hindering their social development. According to the National Marriage Project, between 1960 and 2009, the divorce rate in the United States doubled. Between 40 and 50% of newly married couples will either separate or divorce. By the way, the no-fault divorce came in 1970. So very early on, those stats are from 1960 to 2009. Divorce rate in our country doubled with high divorce rates threatening social stability. Catch this. The United Nations urges governments everywhere to adopt policies that reverse this trend. I would say the United Nations ought to encourage us to pick up our Bibles and read the word of God, and let Jesus Christ change our lives. So that's legal Zoom. There's plenty more where that came from. I just thought I'd give you some things. Again, we're talking about education and motivation. 
without condemnation. So we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. So Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Did you catch that? Isn't that interesting? He says, not to the married, I command, not I, but the Lord. And what he's saying there is he's saying, there's a lot of things that Jesus Christ didn't specifically speak about. One of those things, he didn't speak about directly people that are believers being married to people that are unbelievers. He didn't address that specifically. But here, in the case of believers that are married, and that's what we're talking about right now. We talk about marriage here. We're talking about two believers that are married to each other. And he says, we actually have Jesus's word on that. It's contained there in Matthew 19. Don't go there now, but you can write down a note. You can go back and check it out later. The summary is, is that the disciples talked to Jesus about a marriage and divorce. And there was a culture of easy divorcism in Jesus's day. Some of the rabbis said you could get divorced for any reason, like if your wife burns your toast or anything like that. If she's just a bad wife, you could divorce her. And that was the no-fault divorce version of Jesus's day. But then there were others that had a more strict view of divorce. So they asked Jesus, well, what do you say about divorce? And Jesus said, look, Genesis, God said, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds to that and he says, what God has joined, let not man separate, period. And they say, but wait a second, wait a second, Deuteronomy 24. Jesus, Deuteronomy 24. Moses commanded divorce. And Jesus says, well, actually, he didn't command divorce. He allowed divorce. God allowed Moses to make an allowance for divorce if there was any impurity found in the wife, which is not defined. But Jesus says, this is not how it's been from the beginning. And then he makes one allowance in that section, and that's the allowance for sexual infidelity, for marital infidelity. If your husband or wife commits adultery, then that dissolves the marriage union. And the disciples say, man, Jesus, that's awful strict. I mean, if that's how strict it is, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. And so to the singles, God would say, and Jesus would say, be careful how you choose. Because recognize what you're entering into is a lifelong commitment. So we ought to, singles in here, young people in here, don't let your infatuation run away with you. By the way, infatuation, the root of that in Latin is the word foolish. So when it comes to marriage, don't be foolish. I've heard it said, well said, and I think it's true that, you know, run hard after God. And if you look next to you and you see someone else keeping up, ask them their name. I think that's great advice for dating and marriage. So Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Jesus has directly spoken on these things. By the way, one other note, I have seen marriages that have survived and thrived following infidelity. So yes, you might say, well, my husband's cheated on me. My wife has cheated on me. Now I am free to be divorced. And you are. In God's eyes, you are. But you don't have to. I've watched women say, you know what? I want to work through this. The husband is confessing. The husband is repentant. There is real change. There's real desire to make this work. We have kids involved and we want to make it work. And I've seen it work. I know people in this fellowship where they've been through these things and they have said, you know, we're going to really seek hard Lord. A great book I read not too long ago called Same Kind of Different as Me. Anybody read that book? Same Kind of Different as Me outlines a situation, a couple that went through an adulterous situation. They got counseling. They did all the hard things. They worked it through. And actually, they then continued to be married for a long time after that and had a very, very happy marriage. So just a little caveat that infidelity is grounds for divorce, but it doesn't mean you have to. So Paul continues after saying, not I, but the Lord. The Lord has spoken on these things. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. So all we have in this section from Paul is three very succinct 
sentences about marriage and divorce. They're very clear, but he starts, interestingly, with the wives. Oftentimes he starts with husbands, but now he starts with the wives. Now remember why they're departing. Why is a wife departing from her husband? For them, it was to be more spiritual. That was the idea. I'm going to depart from my believing husband so we can live single and we can be more spiritual. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't depart from your husband. Even if your intention might be holy and spiritual sounding and good, you're entered into a marriage covenant and that's where you should stay. See, you know my story about swimming. I've shared my swimming woes with you over the years. You know, I can swim, but I'm not the strongest swimmer. When we were in school, when in elementary school, did any of you have to do swimming class in elementary school? I had to do swimming class. And there's enough new people here that maybe you don't know the story, but in our gymnasium where the pool was, around the pool wall were pictures of all kinds of wonderful sea creatures. On this end was a turtle and a frog, and on it went around to different types of fishes and all kinds of things, until this side there was a dolphin and a shark. And what we would do, the teacher would line us up according to our swimming ability under the animal where we qualified to be like. And all the good swimmers, they were the sharks. And they all looked at me, me and the guy named Max were over here. I was a turtle. That meant that we could jump in, get our face wet, and jump back out. And Max had cerebral palsy and had leg splints. Yeah, me and Max. So I know you feel bad for me now. It explains a lot to you, doesn't it? But even now, when we go swimming in the summertime, I'll attempt to see how long can I tread water for. And I found an interesting thing that if I tread water in the deep end, 15 feet deep or so, where I can't touch the bottom, I last a lot longer than I do when I tread water in the shallow end, when I know I can just put my foot down and I'm safe. Now, Steve, what in the world does that story have anything to do with what Paul is saying here? When Paul says a wife is not to depart from her husband, and he'll say the same thing, a husband's not to depart from his wife, he takes away the exit sign. He takes away the bottom. And it's amazing how much longer people can endure and how much more motivated they are to work at something when there's no way out, when that's the only choice. So for God, that's the only choice. See, if we say to you, well, you know, marriage is the best, but you know, divorce is good too. And by the way, you won't read anything anywhere that says divorce is good for anybody. I understand that there's abusive situations, there's alcoholic situations, and there are separations that can happen. And we'll talk about that. But in general, you can't read anything anywhere that encourages divorce as a way of handling dysfunction in society. It's not that. But if we say, well, that's good, then you have an exit. You say, well, it's irreconcilable differences. That's what no-fault divorce did for us as a nation. It put the floor back in and said, well, if you're just not happy, if you just don't like the way they cook, if there's just irreconcilable differences, you don't have to reconcile them. Just you have a way out. And people have taken the way out. They put the floor in. Well, God takes the floor back out. And he says, you know what? You've entered into the marriage. This is your marriage. Without the floor there, without knowing I can escape, maybe, 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 just maybe, more people would be motivated to figure it out, to work it through, than to just call it quits. And I know I've been with you guys. I've been through the years of frustration, the years of disappointment, the years of hurt and pain, a lot of water under the bridge. So Paul gives to the wife a side note. And by the way, before I say this, he says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And now he's going to say also, when he goes on, he's going to say, there's some things that not the Lord commands, but I command. 
There's some things we don't have the Lord on. Some of these situations that I've counseled with you in, these are confusing situations. These are difficult. They take prayer and seeking the Lord and seeking his word. And so what happens if a woman has to depart? What what if the situation is alcoholism? Jesus never approached marriage and alcoholism. Jesus never talked about marriage and physical abuse. But Paul says, look, if she needs to depart, then she can depart. But here's the parameters. If a woman has to get out of a bad relationship, then she should stay unmarried. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, don't get out of this marriage to run to somebody else. You know, a lot of times couples will stay in a marriage as long as there's nobody else in the picture. But as soon as somebody comes in the picture, now I'm hearing about, oh, I want to get divorced from my spouse. Most people don't leave the marriage until they have something else to go to. So if you are a single person and you meet someone on a meetup thing or a matchup thing, and you find out that, well, we're separated, but we're not divorced yet, say, thanks, but no thanks. Go back to your husband. Go back to your wife. Go work it out. See, as soon as you're involved, now they lose motivation to work it out at home. Let them lose that motivation with somebody else, but not you. Encourage them. It's good for society. It's good for you. It's just the right thing to do. So let her remain unmarried because that's not one of the constraints for a biblical divorce. You may need to separate. And the hope is that you'll either stay single or you'll be reconciled to your husband. That's the hope for the wife. That's what Paul is hoping for here. And that's the prayer and that's the goal and that's the desire. Because there's kids involved a lot of times and there's other things involved. Are you with me, church? I know this is tough stuff, but I come to understand that you come here because you like the whole counsel of God. So he says about the woman, uh, gives that advice or that instruction. And then he says that a husband is not to divorce his wife with no caveat after that. Husbands, don't divorce your wives. See, a wife, when she gets divorced in that culture, she's kind of left to fend for herself. You were in a very, very vulnerable position as a single woman in ancient Hebrew culture, ancient Greek culture. It was very difficult just because of the patriarchal society. But now he says, husbands, don't divorce your wives because you in the picture, in the bigger picture. Remember, your life fits into a much bigger picture. Marriage is God's institution. He loves it. And he gave it to give a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter five, you know that verse, right? So marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Christ, the husband plays Christ's role. The ladies are snickering, oh my goodness. The husband plays Christ's role. And how does Christ love the church? He gave his life for her. Jesus says, I'll never leave or forsake you. So when the world needs a picture of what God is like, all we can say is, well, look at Christian marriage. That's the best we can do. And it gives the picture of a husband who is lovingly and continually committed to his wife, even, and you look back in the history of the nation of Israel, even when she's unfaithful. Because haven't God's people been unfaithful to God? And maybe some of us, have had other gods in our lives. We've been unfaithful. We've chosen other things over God in our lives. Have you ever done that? Has God stopped loving you? Say no. No, he hasn't. And it's actually, listen, come come here for a minute. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We see that his continual affectionate and caring love for us. When we see ourselves cheating on How can I do that to this God who's laid down his life for me? How could I worship anything else above him? And it's his goodness and it's love and his commitment to me that draws me back. Because I've been out there in the world. You've been out there. You've tried other gods. How have they left you? They leave you a mess, empty and a mess. 
And God says, when you're done, I'm always here for you. So he says, husbands, don't divorce your wives. The wives are responders. The husbands are initiators. Husbands, you are essential to your family. Man that I know, man I respect from this church years ago. He's since moved. He and his wife have moved. They'd been married some 50 to 60 years. And I remember us uh, just talking one morning after prayer. We were talking about marriage. And he said, you know, Steve, when I was growing up, when things broke, we fixed them. And nowadays, when things break, people just throw them away and get new ones. And that was kind of his idea of, of an illustration of marriage. When it's broken, just work to fix it. Don't just throw it away and look for a new one. You know, long-lasting marriage can be an amazing witness to the beauty and wonder and the glory of our God. You know, Helga and I, for the last couple of years, have been spending some time on the island of Bonaire. We go down there for part vacation, part mission trips, and we've met some wonderful people there, a woman that we stay with. Now, Bonaire is a Dutch Antilles island off the coast of Venezuela. And what we've come to learn is that in that culture on that island, they really have no concept of long-standing and happy marriage. It was surprising to us. So we meet them. We're there for two weeks and getting to know them. And one night we get pulled aside and we're talking to our host there. And she says, you know what? Our friends and I noticed something that you and Helga, the two of you, you've been married for 23 years and you're still happy. And this is what they said. We did not think that was possible. So before we ever opened a Bible, before we ever said, hey, you got to know Jesus, before we ever shared about the cross, our marriage was a witness to that. Long-term commitment and long-term joy in that marriage is an amazing witness to a world that knows nothing of sacrificial and selfless commitment. So we come through this part and say, okay, pastor, just go ahead and twist the dagger in my back. I got divorced 10 years ago. Yes, it's been a struggle. It's been painful. And it was my fault. I filed for divorce and now I regret it. I have a couple things I want to say to you. And maybe now even you're remarried. First Samuel chapter 13. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights. Fascinating chapter. Interesting situation. The children of Israel want a king. They've rejected God as their king. They want to be like all the other nations. They want a king. And Samuel approaches them. Samuel tells them, hey, this is a bad idea. You're rejecting God. God's always been your king. God had always rescued them. God had always stepped in. Whenever they would cry out to him, God would fight for them. He got them out of Egypt. He rescued them from their enemies all through the book of Judges. He raised up Gideon. He raised up Barak. He raised up Deborah. He raised up all these people. He was always there for them. And yet they wanted a king. And so when Samuel confronts them, they repent. And they say, oh, we've added sin to our sin. We've made a mess of things. And Samuel says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We've gotten you a king. His name is Saul. And we're going to start fresh right now. If you and your king will worship the Lord, then God will bless you. But if you don't, there'll be consequences. A king can't save you from God. But what I loved about that passage is this understanding of, okay, you made a mistake. You blew it in the past. You made a dumb choice. How many of us can look back to a time in our life? Now, be honest. When you say, I wish I knew then what I know now. Anybody? Everybody look back on the decision you made and said, at the time, it seemed like the thing to do, but now I can see the error of my ways. Anybody else in that? Okay, so we've all been there. And for some of you, that has involved your marriage or a divorce. So you look back and you go, you know, I know I can't unscramble the egg. What do I do? Well, first of all, you take advice from 1 Samuel 13. Whatever marriage you're in now, if you're newly married, then you can confess. You can 1 John 
1, 9 it. You know 1 John 1, 9? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last I checked, divorce was not the unpardonable sin. So 1 John 1, 9, you look back in your life and you say, you know what? I didn't see it then. I see it now. I was in sin. I was wrong. I was a lousy spouse. It was my fault. But now I'm remarried. I can't unscramble the egg. Get down on your knees before the Lord and say, Lord, I just confess that divorce, that was my fault. I had a role to play in that. At the time I was blaming, but now I see it was my fault. And then you get up from that prayer time and you thank Jesus Christ for saving you and for forgiving you. And then you press on in your new normal. You make the best of what you have right now. Whatever state you're in, that's where Christ is living through and in you. Are we together in that church? So he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, and this is where he changes his wording a little bit. Now he's speaking. He can't say that I have the Lord on this because the Lord's never spoken about this, but that doesn't mean this is not scripture. This is inspired scripture. It's just sanctified wisdom from the apostle Paul, applying the truths of the word of God to a unique situation. We do this all the time in the church. All the time we hear situations and go, oh, I I don't know what to do about that. We got to pray about that. He says, I, not the Lord, He presents this sanctified wisdom, says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So now we have the problem of Paul brings the gospel to Corinth. There's two people that are married. They're both idol worshipers. They're both worshiping Zeus or the Bacchus, the god of wine, Aphrodite. They're all doing that thing. Then somebody gets saved. One of the two gets saved. They both don't get saved, but one does. Now that changes a relationship. Now all of a sudden that person is not wanting to go to those places anymore. I'll put it to you like this. It was a number of years ago. I had to meet someone in a hotel in Charlottesville to pick them up. And I go into the hotel and I call the room, let them know, hey, I'm, I'm down here in the lobby. And while I'm in the lobby, I'm sitting and waiting and, and some court TV show thing is on. You know, one of these daytime TV shows. And I'm watching and listening as there's a husband and a wife. And these guys have been down some hard road, you could tell. He'd probably been in prison. He had the little teardrop tattoo by his eye and covered with tattoos and shaved head. And I mean, just looking rough. And then his wife, this woman over here, she also looks equally dressed in very tight jeans, big stiletto heel shoes, and these look like a tough couple. And she is pleading with the judge about why she wants to divorce this husband. Now, I'm imagining, you know, he's beating her, whatever it is, that's what I'm imagining. That's why she wants a divorce. But the judge says, well, why do you want a divorce? And she says, because he's not the man I married. And I'm still waiting. And she said, well, what changed in his life? He's become a Christian now. And now he doesn't want to party with me anymore. And now he doesn't want to do drugs with me anymore. That's not the guy I married. I want out. And the judge looks over at him. He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Don't do those things anymore. And I just thought that was so interesting to watch. But that's what Paul's saying here. If we're in a marriage, it's a mixed marriage in terms of there's a believer and an unbeliever, not mixed racial marriage, mixed faith marriage, a believer married to an unbeliever. It can be a very difficult situation. It can create discrepancies and divisions over money and time. Do we give to the church? Don't you give to that church? It's my money. And all these things can play out. How to raise the kids. Do they go to church? Do they not go to church? All these things can come into play. But he says, if a woman is willing to live with an unbelieving husband, believing husband willing to live with an unbelieving wife, then let them stay in that place. Remember what we read? Whatever state you were saved in, stay in that state. Easy for them to understand, to say, hey, I got married. We were both unbelievers. Now I'm a believer. 
he's not a believer, she's not a believer, and now I need to divorce them because I can't serve the Lord completely because that guy is holding me back. And Paul says, no, which is really interesting to me because it shows the value and the strength and the sanctity of the marriage bond even greater than the potential service you would have for Christ. You see, because that marriage to that unbeliever is your service for Christ. That's your mission field. Verse 13 says, a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Let her not resent the church because all you do, wife, is come to church and you never give him any affection, any attention at all, or you're always at church anymore. No wonder he's never going to come to church because he resents church now because you've not become a better wife because you're a Christian, you've become a worse one. And that can go both ways, but usually that's the way I see Don't come down here and tell everybody about how awful your husband is, what an idiot he is, what a jerk he is, and, oh, ladies, I need prayer because my husband is this, my husband is that. And he knows you're talking about him down here. And he'll never come in those doors if he feels ashamed because you're down here talking and gossiping about what he's like. Now, if you need counseling, have a small group to counsel you, but don't air these things out in the public prayer meeting because the ultimate goal is 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't go there now, but you can look it up later on. The Bible says that a wife can win her husband without a word. Well, how does she do that? By preaching the sermon of a life lived for Christ. And that's why Paul's going to say don't depart because you are having an impact in your family. Check out 1 Peter 3 sometime. Read it through. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, look what he says, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So what he's saying is not saved, but sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Sanctified means special, different. And that's important and that's valuable. You, the fragrance of Christ in you, changes the nature of your home. Some of you are experiencing that. Some of you have experienced that. For some of you, it was a mom that even though your dad wasn't a Christian, it was your mom that lived for Christ and you watched her life. You watched how she lived. And so the unbeliever brings something special, something of Christ into the home that would not be there if you were not there. I mean, imagine if you left the home and your spouse remarried someone who wasn't a Christian. How would the nature of the family devolve without your presence there? What things would become easily acceptable that before there was conviction about because you were there? Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, says something interesting. This is in the Message Bible. Malachi says to the people of Israel, you fill this place, the place of worship, with your whining and sniveling because you don't get what you want from God. So they're praying and asking God, but God's not answering. And Malachi says, do you know why? Simple. Here's why your prayers are not getting answered. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride. And now you've broken those vows, broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God. That's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. Goes on to say, I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. And I won't read the rest of it, but you see what Paul brings in here. All of a sudden, children enter the equation. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. Now, Jacob, when he was young, we came home from church one day, and Jacob went right outside to play. And he had his church clothes, his church sneakers, and his church shoes. And I yelled at him, Jacob, get in here. Get out of that mud with your church clothes on. Come on inside here. And Jacob stopped on that dirt pile and he looked at me straight in the face. He said, dad, I don't care about shoes. I love life. And I thought, man, just convicted me like crazy when he said, I don't care about shoes. I just love life. 
So I just went inside and repented myself. But that's not the kind of unclean. When he says your children would be unclean, he's not talking about playing in the dirt. He's talking about understanding morality, understanding truth, understanding moral conviction. That's what you bring into the home. Ronald Reagan passed no-fault divorce in 1970 and has significantly impacted our culture. It was Ronald Reagan whose son, Michael Reagan, who's adopted son of he and Jane Wyman, his first wife, this is what he said. Divorce is where two adults take everything that matters to a child, the child's home, family, security, and sense of being loved and protected, and they smash it up, leave it in ruins on the floor, then walk out and leave the child to clean up the mess. In a book called Surviving the Breakup, How Children and Parents Cope with Divorce, Dr. Judith Wallerstein from Berkeley Psych Professor between 1966 and 1991 said that Wallerstein was under the belief that children are resilient. They'll get over it. And what people are finding out is that children are not as resilient as we expected them to be. Then through her study, wrote this. She discovered that the belief that if the parents are happier, then the children will be happier as well. She found that that's not true. See, sometimes people get divorced and say, well, we're unhappy. It's contentious in the home. If we divorce, then we can be happier and our children will be happier. Well, what she found out is that's not true. A child's happiness is not dependent upon the happiness of the parents. According to Wallerstein, children generally don't care if mom and dad sleep in different beds, this is a quote, as long as the family is together. Again, a word to those of you that have been through divorce, raised children following divorce. The Bible says God is a father to the fatherless. Whether you've grown up in a healthy family or in a struggling family, there's been divorce or not divorce, either way, we all need God to be our father. We need God to tell us right and wrong. I needed God to tell me what was moral and immoral. I didn't have a culture that told me that. So your kids, don't blame yourself. Don't kick yourself. You can go to your kids now and you can say, kids, I'm really sorry. But I found the Lord and I encourage you, follow the Lord with your life. It is the Bible that says God gives us beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If your children... If you, whatever you've been through, wherever you are, wherever you're going to be, if you will choose to serve the Lord, the Bible says God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Some great promises in the word of God. Verse 15, but if the believer departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So there's another valid reason for divorce, and that would be abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. You can't control what other people do. You can love them and you should. You shouldn't make their lives miserable so they want to leave. You should love them so that they don't want to leave as much as you can. But sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes they're bent on going. What do I do in that case? I mean, if marriage and divorce are this important, maybe I should, maybe I should. You can't. You can only control what you do. So Paul says, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Believers never depart is the idea. A believer is to stay where they are, but an unbeliever You can't control that. They're not under God's control. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You just don't know. Your best witness may or may not have an impact on your spouse. By the way, we don't do those things manipulatively in the marriage. We do what we do because we are serving the Lord, not because we are expecting a response. Does that make sense? But... Verse 17, as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Go figure that one out. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be 
circumcised. In other words, if you were Jewish when you got saved, you're still Jewish. If you were Greek when you got saved, you're still Greek. The Jews don't have to become Greeks. The Greeks don't have to become Jews. However you were when you got saved, that's where you are. He says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. doesn't matter how many Bible studies you show up for. What your husband is going to see, what your unbelieving wife is going to see is that you're serving the Lord from a pure heart. Now, he says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. So now he's saying, like, when you got saved, you don't have to feel like to really be a strong Christian, I've got to get out of this marriage or get out of this job or get out of this state. Now, there are some situations, I will say this, sometimes you think, well, I need a new job. I can only really be a Christian if I have a new job. Now, if you're a hitman for the mafia, that might be true. You can't be the Lord's hitman. That just doesn't jive. I had a friend who was a car salesman, used car salesman, and was called to lie and be deceptive and manipulative and came under conviction and felt like he had to, because of the moral implications of his job and his faith, he had to leave that job. So there may be a moral implication in your job, but in general terms, what they were saying is maybe I have to go move away and live alone in a monastery to really be a Christian. No, no, no. You'll be a Christian right where you are in that difficult circumstances you're in. You don't need to change your circumstances to really be a Christian. In that marriage you're in, with those kids you have, in that job you have, right there, the old saying is bloom where you are planted. Don't uproot yourself and go somewhere else. Bloom where you're planted. Paul says, he finishes it up, verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Now, Paul makes a reference, and I'll give this to you quickly, to a practice in ancient Greece. If you were a slave, you could buy, through much difficulty, you could purchase your freedom. You would do that by working side jobs, and after your master would take the commission, you would deposit what little money you could sock away into the temple of a god, one of the gods. And then after you saved up all the money, it could take years to buy yourself out of slavery. You would go take your master to that temple and the priest of that temple would give you your money back. It's like banking, like a savings account. That money would be given then to your master and you would be considered having been purchased. Your freedom would have been purchased by that God. So you would now be freed from all men and a slave to the God of that temple. Well, for us, the God who bought us, not with precious jewels, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, was Jesus Christ. So now he says, brethren, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, let each of us remain with God in the state which we were called. Why? Because we were bought at a price. Let's not become slaves of men, doing what people say to do, but we're going to do what God says to do.